Before we turn to God's holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of unbelief and doubt, the darkness of ignorance and resistance to you, cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. Scripture passage is Romans 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 13. This is the 44th sermon in our Roman series. We pick up at the end of 9 because Paul begins a new topic there, as we will see. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's face it. 
There are many outside of the Reformed faith who are not comfortable with the doctrines of election and predestination. And I get it. The idea that our salvation is based on God's sovereign choice not only grates on our nerves of our rugged individualism, our self-determination to control our own destiny and our idea of fairness, but Scripture seems to support the idea of free will and personal decision. At every major turn in the New Testament, there is a clear call to place faith in Jesus and follow him. In the first preaching of the gospel following Pentecost, those who heard the gospel asked what they should do and were instructed by Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Scripture has countless other examples of calls to repentance and faith, which taken at face value seem to point to free will, not sovereign choice. Further, the thought may creep into our heads. If my salvation is based entirely on sovereign choice, then why would my action matter at all? If I am among the elect, I can live a terrible life filled with sin and I will still be saved in the end. If I am not among the elect, I can live an honorable life and seek God, but I will still be damned in the end. There was a time in my life when this was my line of thinking. I rejected the doctrine of predestination because it seemed to me to be an offense to humans as autonomous moral agents responsible for their own decisions. God's sovereign choice over me did not square with my understanding of Scripture's call for my response to the gospel. My acceptance or rejection of the gospel was my choice. Certainly God's grace played a role in my salvation for how could I have chosen Christ if God had not sent him to die for sinners like me? But I would not accept that my faith was entirely a gift. Placing faith in Jesus was something that I had chosen to do. But regardless of our sensibilities on election and predestination, it is clearly taught in Scripture. As we have seen the last two weeks in Romans 9, God's sovereign choice is inescapable. You will remember that in this section of Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with this dilemma of Jewish unbelief. For he has just spent the entire last chapter, chapter 8, providing assurance of our salvation based on God's promises to the elect. But how can we have such an assurance if the Jewish people, God's very own people, have been excluded? How is it that Paul can assert that this has been God's plan as revealed in the scriptures, specifically through the law and the prophets, when the ones who were given these scriptures have rejected this gospel? Instead, it is the Gentiles, the ones who are not among God's chosen people, who are receiving the gospel. As Paul says in verse 30 of chapter 9, it is the Gentiles who were not even pursuing righteousness who are the ones who have obtained it. In chapter 9, Paul has begun dealing with these objections by reminding us not only that God's election within Israel has not solely been a matter of physical descent, but also by telling us about the sovereignty of God in election. 
This is one of those passages that anyone who has a resistance to predestination and election is going to have issues with because Paul asserts in no uncertain terms that it is God's right to have mercy on whomever he wills and to harden the heart of whomever he wills. Therefore, God cannot be accused of being unjust. Rather, in all that he does, he is justly working out his purposes in order that his promise of salvation to all the nations might be accomplished and through Israel. But we come to this place and Paul doesn't stop. Paul now, perhaps rather unexpectedly, makes a shift in verse 30 and asserts that the unbelief of the Jews is not simply a matter of God's sovereign will. What is also at play here? And here is the shocker. Their exclusion from the promises of the gospel and the inclusion of the Gentiles is a matter of what? Human responsibility. Well, how can this be? On the heels of this great text of God's sovereign choice in election, we have a definite text on human responsibility to respond to the gospel. Well, which is it? Some might wonder. Is it a matter of God's will or is it a matter of their will? And you know the right answer, don't you? The answer is yes. It is both. These chapters are one of the clearest displays in all of Scripture that both God's sovereignty and human responsibilities are true. And when examined carefully, they provide a measured understanding in which we don't end up in the ditches on either side of the road where God's sovereignty and human responsibility are either denied or minimized. So as we look at what Paul says here, my prayer is that we would not only come away with a better understanding of how God accomplishes his saving purposes among his people from all nations, but that we would also come away with a better understanding of the ways in which Scripture puts God's sovereignty and election and human responsibility side by side unapologetically and the importance of our holding to the reality of both. So Paul begins, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, and that that is righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You might have noticed that Paul loves to use the metaphor of running a race to describe the Christian faith. We see it in Acts 20 where he is talking to the elders at Ephesus about finishing the race and completing the task given to him. We see it in 1 Corinthians 9 where he talks about training and running to win the race and receive the prize. We see it in 2 Timothy 4.7 where he talks about having finished the race. And it isn't as obvious here, but the language Paul uses is race language. He essentially says that the Gentiles weren't even running the race. They weren't pursuing the prize, yet somehow they have obtained it. What is the prize? It is right relationship with God. Meanwhile, the Jews who were running the race, who were pursuing the prize, have done what? They've tripped and fallen. 
I was bringing my youngest daughter, Kendi, to day school here the other day, and as we entered the building, I immediately went into the kitchen, and I don't remember what exactly I was doing over there in the kitchen right beside the sanctuary. Anyhow, Kendi followed me into the kitchen and then out again as I left, and on the way out, something caught her eye, maybe a friend who was coming in to the building from the parking lot. She turned and looked, but she kept walking forward. You know where this is going, right? The next thing I hear is a thud as she walks headfirst right into the doorframe. The wailing ensues. Bless her sweet little heart, but this unfortunately is not uncommon for her. The other day she fell next to our couch and we didn't see what happened. We asked her. She said she tripped over her elbow. (laughs) Not sure how that happens. We've all been there, though, right? Something catches our eye. We turn to look while we continue to move in another direction. And next thing we know, thud into a wall, face down into the ground. This is what Paul is describing. Israel is running, and not just running, but they're running zealously, as Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 10. They have a zeal for relationship with God. They get turned around, though. They end up looking in the wrong direction and they hit a wall. They find themselves face down in the dirt. So what happened? What was the issue? Well, Paul tells us that they sought the law for their righteousness. Rather than looking to God for their righteousness, they tried unsuccessfully to establish their own righteousness through their works. It wasn't that pursuing the law was a bad thing. The law had been given to them as a gift from God that they might know how to respond to his goodness to them, that they might know how to honor him as their God and to live before him as his people. Paul's already established the place of the law and that the law is good. It wasn't a bad thing to pursue the law. It was a bad thing to pursue the law as a means of righteousness. It was a bad thing to try to find a right standing before God through attempted obedience to the law. And now Christ Jesus has come and the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But they have refused to submit themselves in faith to God's righteousness. Which has been given as a grace of God. Thus they have stumbled and fallen. And why? Verse 3, because they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They had a zeal for God, but as Paul says, it was not according to knowledge. So you have these people who know that they need to be righteous in order to stand in the presence of a holy God. And recognizing this need of righteousness, they set out to establish their own righteousness. It's tragic. It's not only tragic because they didn't fully realize the true brokenness and limitation of their humanity, their depravity, but even more tragic because God has been revealing that righteousness would be given as a free gift through faith in Him. Jesus Christ who had come and for our sake perfectly upheld the law and having lived in perfect obedience offered himself up as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. He was the Messiah that had been prophesied. Who had come that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Before I go any further, I want to comment on this idea of zeal without knowledge because it's not limited to this context. It's not limited to the first century Jewish people who missed what God had done for them in Jesus Christ. No, anyone who has a sense of a righteous and holy God and recognizes that he or she as a human being is not righteous will attempt to find righteousness in one way or another. And either righteousness comes from God as a gift, as the gospel proclaims, or it is established by our own good works and by religious observances. But on top of this reality, we are all in our sinful nature, prone to pride and inclined to the temptation to boast before God because of the good works we have done. So we have a serious problem. We can easily end up with a zealousness to be in right relationship with God without the knowledge of how this is accomplished. Proverbs 19.2 says this, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. There is no shortage of zeal in this world. Every day I turn on the news only to find that there is something else that people are protesting. Issue after issue where change is demanded, and this is in no way a comment about what is being protested, but I think we all recognize that there are things that are broken in this world that need to be fixed. However, I think if there is something I have realized over the past few years of watching this, it is that zealousness and sincerity are not enough. There are too many people out there who are zealous and sincere and are trying to do something to make positive change, but who lack knowledge. The thought seems to never occur that we can be sincerely wrong. And we can have good intentions that end with a tragic result. This passage is a warning that we can be tragically wrong. This was true in Jesus' day. Look at what Jesus tells the scribes and the, the Pharisees, the most zealous among the Jews in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is true in the Reformation, right? As we have perhaps realized as we have studied the history of the church, Martin Luther went from fighting the Roman Catholic Church over, ref, over justification by faith alone to be engaged in another battle with people on the other side who had gotten a taste of freedom and turned it into license. And it is still true today. Too often I've heard Christians say that doctrine doesn't really matter. That doctrine only divides and should be dismissed. All that matters is a zeal for the Lord, relationship with the Lord. Wrong. Scripture warns us that a zeal for the Lord which is not informed by Scripture can be disastrous. And I pray that we would take this to heart. For the unbelieving Jews in Paul's context, they had missed that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, verse 4. Now, end here could be used in the sense of goal, that the law points to Christ, that he has fulfilled it, and this is true. 
But this is not what Paul is expressing here. What he intends to say here is that Christ has put an end to using the law as a way of getting right with God. Righteousness comes as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ, not obedience to the law. Again, the law was not bad, nor did Christ come to abolish it, right? But he did put an end to it as a way of salvation, a way of getting right with God. Which is why Paul has told us earlier that those who have faith in Christ are no longer under the law, but have died to it. Paul's going to fill out this statement from verse 4 in the remaining verses of our passage. And he's going to show us that this truth, show us this truth by pointing us back to the Old Testament scriptures. So first, he points us to Leviticus 18.5, which tells us that those who keep the statutes and rules of God shall live. Problem is what, though? No one can keep the law perfectly, which means that those who try to find their righteousness under the law only end up cursed. Trying to to obtain righteousness by way of the law, therefore, is futile. So then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30 to reveal this contrast between a righteousness from the law and righteousness by faith. Now, it's important that we understand the context of this passage before we examine how Paul uses it. You see, the Jewish people would have been aware of the the context of this text from Deuteronomy 30. They would know that in Deuteronomy 27 through Deuteronomy 21, that the covenantal blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience are rehearsed. As the narrative unfolds in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, it becomes apparent that Israel will certainly experience the curse and be thrust out of the land. That's in chapter 30, verse 1. The Lord has withheld his grace from the Israel of Moses' day so that they cannot comprehend or perceive what what God has done in their midst. That's 29, verses 3 and 4. Israel will return to the Lord following exile after he has circumcised their hearts and removed the hardness that has prevented them from keeping the Torah. That's chapter 30, verse 6, right before these lines that Paul is quoting. It is likely, therefore, as Thomas Schreiner states, that Paul would have seen this prophecy fulfilled with the coming of Christ. Even though the commandment, the word in Moses' day was near in the sense that it was revealed clearly to Israel so that they had no excuse for failing to keep it, there were, at the same time, indications in the text that the law will not be kept by the present generation and will be fulfilled only in a coming age. So what is Paul doing with this text here? He's saying that this coming age is here. What the law has demanded has reached its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The day of exile is over and the age of restoration of Israel has commenced. God is now fulfilling the saving promises he made to his people. So now look at how Paul begins his argument of righteousness by faith through Deuteronomy. Before he actually goes to Deuteronomy... 30, he quotes a line from Deuteronomy 9, do not say in your heart. If you look at that passage, you find that Deuteronomy 9 is a reminder to Israel not to believe it is by their righteousness that they have come to possess the promised land. 
So before Paul even gets to what Deuteronomy 30 says, he has already underscored the preclusion of boasting in one's own righteousness. So then he very easily moves from there into this text in which he finds a promise of the fulfillment of the law in Christ. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is telling us what is required is humanly impossible. It must depend solely on God's work. Therefore, we should not seek to bring Christ down or to raise him up from the dead. These things have already been done. They've been accomplished by God for our sake. Our response is not one of doing, but of believing. He's also telling us here that Christ is near to us, is immediately accessible to faith. The gospel in our mouths is in our mouths and in our hearts. It is close. It is ready. It is easily accessible. And not only this, but we find as we move through verse 13 that Christ is equally accessible to all, to anyone, to everyone. There's no longer a distinction between Jew and Greek, no favoritism. It's not a matter of ethnicity or culture. It's not a a matter of those who have the law and those who do not. Paul emphasizes this both explicitly in what he says here and by way of quoting the prophets Isaiah and Joel. He wants to affirm that God's saving purposes to gather for himself a people from all nations is being fulfilled. So... What now then is required for salvation? How does one obtain this righteousness of God in Jesus Christ? Having heard the gospel, one very simply does what? Confesses with his mouth that Christ is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised Christ from the dead. This is our human response to the gospel. We receive it in faith. We shouldn't understand this as a mere subscription to a creedal formula. Just because you acknowledge the historicity of Jesus Christ does not save you, nor is it some kind of magical incantation that can be muttered and produce salvation. Paul wants to emphasize in verses 10 and 11 that a genuine confession with the mouth is rooted in an honest conviction in the heart. One calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus to save and places trust in Christ's lordship and it is atoning sacrifice on the cross. And this trust will result in the vindication of the believer on the day of judgment. Paul sees that many of his Jewish, his fellow Jews have not made a decision for the Lord as we say which, as Paul will tell us in chapter 11, results in them being cut off from the Lord. There is human responsibility here. But Paul, as he stated in the beginning of chapter 9, and as he states here in chapter 10, verse 1, sincerely wants his fellow Jews to abandon their trust and their ability to keep the law and to turn to the Lord Jesus to find life. And so he prays for them. And with this in mind, we don't want to miss here that any of this discussion of human response in chapter 10 leaves behind what Paul has established in chapter 9. As Thomas Schreiner states, 
in his commentary, the ultimate reason that Gentiles who were not even pursuing a right status with God exercise faith is the electing word of God that cannot fail. That's verse 6 of chapter 9. Since election is not based on the will or effort of the chosen one. That's verse 16. The reference to faith shows that human response is imperative, but the ultimate source of such faith is God's merciful election. This is why Paul is praying for them, because it is God alone who can move in their hearts and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, all of this might seem like a big contradiction, How can it be that God's sovereignty and human responsibility can be placed side by side? And the temptation might be, depending on our leanings, to explain one or the other away. But scripture has no problem with placing them side by side. Certainly not here in Romans 9 and 10 and not in other places of scripture as well. So how do we make sense out of all of this? I think J.I. Packer gives us a good start. He calls the sovereignty of God and human responsibility an antinomy, an antinomy, which he defines as an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seeming irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. Might be early to learn a word like antinomy, but listen, keep up with me. Scripture teaches us that God orders and controls all things. Human actions among them in accordance with his own eternal purpose. And yet, Scripture also teaches that every person is responsible for the choices he makes and the courses of action he pursues. Whether we can make sense of it or not, both are true. And all of this might seem as though it's really heady theology. It should be reserved for people sitting in ivory towers with time to ponder the mysteries of God. But I assure you, it is not. The implications of what you believe Scripture says on this matter will make a tremendous impact in how you respond to God's calling. One issue that arises from this matter is the need for evangelism. The thinking is, if God is sovereign and will bring the elect to himself regardless of what I do, then why should I evangelize? This is, in fact, the context of J.I. Packer's discussion of the matter. And this is where Paul is going with all of this. But for now, you may be aware that one of the accusations that has been leveled against those of the Reformed faith is believing in election eliminates the necessity for evangelism. We will see how that is wrong. And unfortunately, for far too many who hold to the Reformed faith, whether they say that this is the case or not, practically they live like it is. But before we can even consider evangelism, what do we do with this issue of God's sovereignty and our responsibility as it relates to our own salvation? And if you haven't heard anything this morning, hear this. Will you believe that since God is sovereign that it doesn't really matter what you do? Or will you believe that your salvation is entirely dependent on your choice? These are options, according to Scripture, which will find you in a ditch. And the result, no matter how sincere, could be disastrous. But here is something that we should be challenged by through Romans 9 and 10. Do we believe that we have come to faith on our own, or has it been a gift of the sovereign grace of God alone? 
Is our faith something for which we give all the glory to God, or is it our own work? But likewise, have we actually made a decision to follow Jesus? Or have we merely heard the gospel proclaimed and thought to ourselves, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for sinners, without really placing our trust in him and committing ourselves to follow him? Trusting in Christ actually matters. It might very well be that for some here, an intellectual assent has been made that has not actually found an agreement in our heart. As Paul makes clear, a real confession is preceded by a true conviction in the heart. If this is the case, I urge you to hear the invitation that Jesus offers to you today to come to him and to find life. As J.I. Packer states, the Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect. But because they neglect the great salvation. And because they will not repent and believe. The Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect. But because they neglect the great salvation and because they will not repent and believe. Paul makes clear in this passage what is required for salvation. And as shocking as it might sound to our reformed ears, it is not election. It is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? If you have not, I urge you, I plead with you not to delay in placing your trust in Jesus Christ and calling upon his name for the salvation of your soul. To God be the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that you have offered up yourself in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that we would place our trust in this atoning sacrifice. Lord, that we would not delay, that we would not tarry, Lord, but that we would run to you, even as you have come to us and made yourself near to us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed.